are now listening to the Elite Podcast by Wiser. Ollie, uh, welcome to the Elite Podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to have you on board finally. Um, so you've been involved in some of our events, um, but I've seen that you've moved over to Soursoft eight, nine months ago. Uh, April, so yes. Uh, my math isn't good enough, but somewhere seven, seven, eight months ago, yeah. Been creating a big scene in the market, so I've been like very interested sitting down with you and interviewing you and learning all about your journey in Southloft and your time before that as well. So you was at LinkedIn before for a bit? Uh, for, for, for a bit, bit for, for 10 years. For 10 years, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I started my sales career in um, door-to-door sales, did two years door-to-door sales for my sins, and then did 10 years sales recruitment then 10 years at LinkedIn before setting up sales loft in April. It's a good tenure. I know, yeah, it's a shock. I think the average now of in any role is like 18 months or so, or 14 months. So what made you keep at those two roles for such a long period of time? Um, I, I only did, my roles were tend, tended to be two years at a time. Okay. So when I joined recruitment, I used to do a job for two years, then set up a new team or something, um, or learn a different skill. So if you look at the both of my 10 year tenures, they were up both two years, two years, two years, and then the last job within those was both three years before leaving. So there's a there's a pattern. So your current employer should look out for that then. Yes, yeah. <laughs> when I go past two years. What made you make the transition from recruitment into tech sales or LinkedIn? Um, I I was recruiting in the tech space when I was at, so I was, I was recruiting sales professionals into IT etc. Um, and I just wanted to get into that space. I felt that it offered me. Uh, the choices are, if I was staying in recruitment, I could run my own company, set my own company, or go do the same thing for somebody else. Um, and I wanted something new, and I got approached by LinkedIn, and it was an absolute no-brainer. I thought I was going to have to take a pay cut and find some role I didn't want, and I ended up being very lucky in the opportunity I had. What stage were they when you joined? So I think they were about 14 people in the UK. So uh, they had the US office and I think, I can't remember how many employees, um, but there was 14 people in the UK and I went and when I joined, I was the only new business salesperson outside the US. Wow. So it was a long time ago. And when, he, when you left, how many employees were there? Do you know what? I don't know. No. In the UK next door, I think there's probably about 250 and there's probably 2,000 in Dublin. Yeah. And then the offices in Italy and Paris, everywhere. So quite a few thousand in EMEA. Um, so it grew a lot. And when did you step into leadership at LinkedIn? When did that happen? So I think it was, was it 2013, I think? So I did four or five years of sales. So pure new business sales, then moved into account management, and then I set up a team uh, that sells to the recruitment industry um, about five years ago, and uh, built that to be $50 million with about 40, uh, no, 20 people. And then, um, then, then it was time to move. Did you build that team from scratch, or was you kind of coming in as like a? It was sort of. It was basically the the people were already in the business selling to the market, but there were in other people's teams that were selling to corporate as well. So it was just putting the people into one team and starting with a small base, a small team, and then built that out from there. Got it. Okay. And then you got to the point of like moving on to Salesloft. How did that come about? Because that's going from like a really, really big corporate, right? Yeah. Well, got to become a big corporate to go into the first on the ground for Salesloft. Yeah, I think that things change. And I think that um, what I realized that I wasn't getting the, I didn't have the passion 
for what I was doing as much as I did. In the early days when I was setting up, setting up a team, building a culture, working out the go-to-market narrative and, and being creative, I spent some time, I read a book called The Monk Who Sold His Ferrari, which gets you to really understand. I love it. Robin Sharma. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, and I've still got loads of notes from it, and it helped me understand what my purpose was in regards to what I wanted to do, what kept me happy. Um, and I realized that it was about the, the creativity side, um, that creating a culture, creating a go-to-market, something new and exciting. And I think that that's what made me realize that I, LinkedIn had got too big for me, for what I do, um, what, what I enjoy, so I say. Um, and so it was simply time to move on. And it was I was very lucky with Salesloft that it, the timing came about because I think that a couple of things that I've always cared about, like the, the sale, sales industry or profession, that it's not um, highly regarded. Um, it's like, oh, I failed something, so I went into sales, or I couldn't find a job, I went into sales. And I think that um, it's got a bad rep, and Salesloft really care about the industry. I mean, their solution that we provide helps people be more authentic, but also, and, and build trust and those kind of things where the industry is going, but a company that actually have a passion for changing the industry and the profession is exciting to me because I think it's uh, there's a long way to go. Yeah. Um, it's definitely it, changing though. 100%. I really see it. When I came here and I launched Wiser Elite to do sales recruitment, I was like, I don't want to recruit the kind of greasy-haired car sales, but in, the, in a way I wanted to find that profession or a professional who was going to go out there and do it in the right way. And, I've been so fascinated by the software tech industry that everyone is just like, just like yourself, mm -hmm. so, so willing to help out, to contribute, to style and approach is different. Um, I can see that, it's definitely moving. And that's why I want to do this podcast, is just to kind of get more of that to light. Yeah, I, th I think that a lot of people, when you ask them what's important in sales nowadays, they talk about trust. And I don't think that was there before. So I think we still do have a long way to go, i.e. having more females in sales would be, it'd be great as well. Um, and being more aware of uh, the mental well-being of people in the sales profession would be great. But it is moving in the right direction. And I feel that the role I'm doing and the company I work for uh, enable me to be more interested in that and be able to do things like this where I can talk openly about it. I think it's important. Sure. I mean, I'm sure there's a bunch of like learnings we can go through at LinkedIn, but I'm particularly interested in learning about like your time at Salesforce so far and I think anyone looking into what you're doing, they're probably thinking about transitioning from going from a bigger company to being the first on the ground. Mm. Um, what's the first thing you think about when you're about to take on that role? Like, what do you look for before you accept the offer when you're like considering the options as first on the ground? So, uh, before joining, I was adamant my choice was gonna be around culture first. That, that's the first thing that um, I would be looking at. That, uh, and if I was talking to anybody, anybody about a role, it was the company either has to be proud of their culture or want me to build a culture. Because when I joined LinkedIn years ago, I. After 10 years in recruitment where companies talk about culture, then you hear back from your applicant three months later because they don't have a culture. I realized that joining LinkedIn where they talk a lot about their culture, I was a little bit dubious about whether it was true. And I learned at LinkedIn how important culture is, um, how you get, I believe you get higher performance from having a good culture and um, the impact it has. So that was my one thing. I. Uh, was my first choice of looking at culture first. Um, 
then also I wanted to make sure that I could go into a role that I can grow in and a company that has the right values. So they were my, they were my number one, Got really. It. What was you trying to spot in culture? Joe, it's hard. Because um, I love like what Jeff um, talks about at uh, LinkedIn, which is all about transformation, right? Yes. A lot of it is about yep. the individuals there. Um, and they've clearly defined their values there and what they want to try and achieve as a business. Mm. Um, what was you trying to spot at Sales Loft? I don't know. I mean, the fact that they have core values and the fact that people spoke about their core values, it wasn't, oh yeah, let me remember what our core value was. So they knew what it was, what they were. Um, but then when I went through my interview process, I did about 10 interviews with C-level individuals all in a week. And all of them, all of them spoke about values, but when you actually asked them questions, their answer, you could tell they, they aligned with those values. And I think it's easy to tell, it's sometimes easy to tell if someone isn't aligned, they're just saying it for, for the sake of it. Um, but it was speaking to Kyle Porter, our CEO, when his passion around the values and the culture, that's what made me really understand that they, they lived by it. It wasn't just bullshit. So it was, that helped me buy into it. And everyone was very aligned on that when I spoke to them. So what is the job? What are you looking to achieve for SalesLoft? So um, it's to build SalesLoft across EMEA um, and give us a springboard into APAC, hopefully. It's um, to replicate the skeleton of the culture that they've built, bought, built in the US, but make it local. Um, not just replicate it because you can't do that, it doesn't work. Um, and to grow the business as quickly as we can, basically, be as successful as we can. How long has it been going for in the US now? So in the US, it has been, well, it was, you might have to edit this bit out. I think it was 2011, we need to check that. Uh, it's been going for a while in the US. Um, it, it did start in a different format and they started in Pardox offices. Um, years ago, and um, Kyle started to understand the difference between where, where marketing was and the sales had a gap, um, and that uh, he could make the sales uh, industry, the sales profession, more authentic. Um, and that's where it came from. So it's it's been around a while, but it I say the product wasn't even the same format when they first started. Got it. First 90 days in your role, like what do you think about? Uh, recruitment. Okay. Um, I was, I had to sign an office. Um, I had to, um, luckily I had one person move over from the US, which was an absolute blessing, Chantal. She, um, she helped me understand more about the business and, help, and just started selling. Um, and- How integral was that part? Having someone else there with what? you? Looking back, it was so integral. I think that where we would be now, and it's not just while it was just me and her sat in an office and she could sell, it was when the new guys came on board, what she was doing to help them um, and just everything. I mean, it wasn't someone sitting there going, oh, I need this doing, who do I speak to? She knows. Um, and so it's been a massive difference. Um, but my first thing, I just wanted to build the team as quickly as possible. We, we needed headcount approval of how many we were going with. We need to get the jobs advertised. We need to start building the network. Um, and I used my experience and knowledge from being at LinkedIn of how to build a brand and an employer brand and got very active on LinkedIn and uh, social media very, very quickly. Yeah, sure. 
how do you define what headcount you need to start with? Like, how does that work out? So um, you, you're told. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. no, I, th I think I think for me it was looking at what we have and what we want um, because one thing that I do think is important is coming from being an American company and setting up over here. If you purely build a sales team, the message to the market is different. Um, and so I was really pushing for customer success, technical support, solutions consultants, so pre-sales, and. I think it's a, a big thing to do that because if we're going in saying, yeah, we're now in the UK, we're in EMEA and this is our solution and they go, right, okay, where's our support come from? And you go America, well, you may as well not be here. So having everybody here, I mean, we've got 10 people now, enterprise, commercial, SDRs, um, but we do have customer success and we've got technical support who's moving over, which is going through the visa process very soon. Um, so it's the next stage that you've got to really think about it because that's going to be sales heavy. When do you take sales ops? When do you take marketing? That's a bigger question. And did you have it all start at the same time? Was it staggered over a period of time? What's... I was lucky enough to get all of them apart from one on the, on the same day. The, the only one I had to wait for was um, waiting for a financial year end at his last company that had to wait a little bit, but it was only a one month. Um, so my whole team went to Atlanta for their onboarding together. I flew over, which was brilliant. I, they, I was asked, should we do onboarding in the UK? No, they need to see head office. You want to be make sure that they feel part of the organization. Um, and the fact that they all went together, it built a, a great bond between them. And um, they're all very different um, at my team. I was going to ask that before we get on to like, how do you cultivate that culture and the bonding part? Like, what do you look for initially? So when you're I mean, you use that LinkedIn and you got to that point where it's getting bigger. And so you pretty high people at different levels of that kind of journey when you're going first on the ground, what type of people are you looking for? So I learned a lot, or should we say, I made mistakes in the past that I think when I've started building the teams at LinkedIn, I took what I'd class as a cookie cutter approach where everyone was too similar. And it was, there was a lack of diversity. I'm not talking about gender diversity or anything. I mean, there was that as well, but diversity of thought and just different people in a team, the more different you can make them with a common goal and a common purpose and a, com a commonality between them, they're a stronger team. And this time setting up here, I made, I put a lot of emphasis on culture ad rather than culture fit, because I think it's important. And I think that I, um, the way I went about recruitment was really stripped back all of the experience. So as long as they've got sales and as long as they've got B2B and things, really, instead of going, right, I want someone that's sold to the same market or anything like that, strip it back and lead with culture. And there's a few other areas that I would prioritize, which for me were intelligence, work ethic, curiosity and coachability and put those in there and then think about culture. And if I was going with those and when it came to experience stripped back to I mean, it's the ability to sell to a sales leader or sales ops. Sometimes someone that's sold into IT sells in a different way, but do they have the skills to do it? Do they have the ability to do it? So as long as we can coach them and they're coachable, then that's a big thing. So that helped me really prioritize the, the makeup of the team. And after the first few weeks, a lot of the team commented, we're all so different, but we're all so similar. And 
it's like a team of superheroes. They've all got their superpower. One person is fantastic at discovery. Another person is more analytical. Another person has other skills. So you, you're just sitting there like, I knew this would come together. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. yeah. um, it's all a master plan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. pretend I, I meant to do it. Um, <laughs> and that's what I think makes a big difference, that you've got diversity of thought, background, skills, everything. And I believe that's how you build a strong team. I think a lot of sales leaders fall short in hiring properly because they just don't know how to interview and mm. don't have the structure you have there in terms of like identifying intelligence and coachability. Like, what advice could you give to like best practice of interviews? So, so what I did is I, uh, as I say, I looked at what we do. So we sell sales engagement to sales leaders. I really minimised that. So what what I didn't want, I worked out what I didn't want. And it was things like the average order value and the monthly target or quarterly target. If you can work within a, a parameter of being as close to that, if, you're, if, you, if someone's closing three, five deals per quarter, per month, you don't want someone that closes five deals a year because they're not gonna be compatible to that type of role. You wanna work all of that out, get it to that minimum that to me, that's what the recruiter screened for me. Okay, because that if they didn't meet this certain thing, there was about five key criteria. If they missed more than one of them, I didn't want to see them. And then that after that, I planned out my intelligence, work ethic, etc. And I worked out at what stage in this process should I be looking at this. Culture was right along every one of them, every stage. Um, intelligence was at certain stages. Curiosity. I was looking for questions when I first met them um, about me, about the business, and just being curious about it. So I really mapped out at what stage are we best to actually look at these skills or abilities, um, and that helped me do it. What did you do on your side to kind of like best showcase sales loft? Um, showed them what I was about a little bit. It's um, I'm one of my. Uh, things that I really enjoy doing is developing people. So throughout the interview process, I will be asking, okay, what's your biggest area of development? If I took you on, what would I need to do to develop you to be your best? Um, so making sure they saw that side, I think you've got to, I think you've got to be really honest in an interview process about what you are as a leader and what your company is. There's no point in me saying, taking someone that needs micromanaging, because I'm not a, that type of leader. Um, I would set standards at the beginning, and if they want, they can come to me, but I wouldn't sit with them every day and say how many new calls you made. So I think it's about setting it up at the beginning, because there's no point in saying, yeah, I'm gonna do X, Y, and Z for you, and then letting them down, they won't stay, then it's a bigger cost, you've gotta find somebody else. So just being honest from the beginning, but letting them understand the person that they're gonna be working for and how it's gonna be, I think is what I, I would say. Okay, so recruitment's priority number one. What else did you look at in the first 90 days? Um, my learning. I had a lot to learn. It was, um, I wanted to understand the culture that we had in the US that we, that were the skeleton of what we wanted to replicate in a way. Um, the products, enough to maybe not be demoing every day, but understand it well enough that we could work out the narrative. It's a completely different market we sell to. So that was something I got my head into quite quickly of understanding how we should be positioning the, the solution, but also how long a demo should be, the structure of a demo. We are very different in the way we sell. 
Are you still working that out or have you defined that quite quickly? Uh, I think you're always working it out. Um, I'd be lying to say, yes, we've nailed it. I think that it's there's been a lot of learnings from it. I think that in the US, they're more likely to do a 45 minute demo, um, maybe even more. And I think that that doesn't work over here. Um, we're just more direct. We need more direct communication over here than we do in the US. So there's just differences. So it's just concentrating on how can I arm the people I'm taking on to be as ready as possible and not purely be looking at what the US do and replicating it because I don't think it will work as well as it can if we actually tinker with it. Got it. What are the common mistakes, perhaps not from yourself, that you think sales leaders make in their first couple of quarters? Well, maybe from yourself. <laughs> <laughs> There's a list of what um, I think. I think that uh, not prioritised culture is honest thought of that. Just going for top line revenue and just sort of about yeah, trying I mean, to get if I see in. someone that can do 200% of target but is not going to fit in with the culture, I won't take them. And I think that um, if you're not prioritising the culture and taking the right people for the right reasons, the cost of go, taking someone through a pip or someone being happy and not performing or a person not fitting in with the culture and impacting the people around them, that's a big thing. And I think that I think that that's what some people will make a mistake on. Um, apart from that, I'm not sure I know of others. Oh, well, actually, purely replicating what works in the US over here. Okay. I think that it's, um, we are, it is a different market. So I think we need to think about that and is it buying behaviours or? Um, I think it's a lot. I think it's just, it, it's um, the way we communicate and the way that we sell is very different over here. I believe the way I see it is we, we are more, this is what it is, this is what it does, this is how it's going to help you, rather than these big generic strategic terms that people will use. I think that's what I see as a bit of a difference. It's, I often hear, um, people say, what does that actually mean when, when it's too uh, taken straight from America? Got it. Okay, fair enough. Um, and so you've got everything in plan for the first 90 days. You've got the team onboarding. Like, how does that all work out at South Loft? What did you try to do to make sure they're all coming together? I've, we've not had any problems with them coming together. I think that onboarded in the US and then we, we moved, we took one of the sales enablement guys and put them in the UK for a week to help extend that further. But they're all going through the same journey at the same time. And they've got, um, I think one thing that I'm trying to make sure I'm not doing is be too close to them. Because if they're always coming to me, and I am there to support them, don't get me wrong, but I think sometimes in my past, I've been too close to them, helping them too much that I want them to come to me, but I also want them to go to each other and help each other and work with each other. Um, and I think that helps. Um, so, but I think that they are, we're in, the set, we're in a small office day in, day out together, and they all get on so well. Last Friday, we did QBR sessions, so everybody stood up and talked about what their learnings were from last, last quarter, what their strategies are for this quarter. And I think doing things like that really helps. We have, a, for example, a bi-weekly team meeting as well, which we're all, we, we always get together. We always start that with more of a check-in about how we are personally, um, whether it's 
once, uh, probably once, twice a quarter, we'll do it more around um, the uh, performance pyramid, which is asking about their mental well-being, their physical well-being, and the, if they're open, if, if they want to share that. So we just try keep an open environment where we talk about us and ourselves, and it's not just about work. And I try prioritize work-life balance for them as well. Did you define your culture in like? a few sentences and that like, this is it and this is what we have to work towards. Like how does someone know whether they're fitting in or like they're actually playing that part of that culture? So, I mean, our core values are exactly the same as in the US and it's things like glass half full, put customers first, etc. When you look at glass half full, it's around having that positive attitude to things and learning and what can you take from a situation, not, not dwelling in, in the negatives. Um, and I think that your core values actually shape what your business is, is and what, it, what it's like, how people act with each other. So we have that. I think that, I mean, and I also have one-to-ones with every member of staff and the first 10 minutes of that is how are you personally? And if they start talking about work, I'm like, no, I'm not interested in work. Let's talk about you, how are you fitting in? How have you got any problems, et cetera? So uh, it's Do you ever hard. get anyone guarded about that? Um, I, I mean, I don't believe so because I think that people come to me with their personal things as well. Um, I've learned a lot. My wife's a counsellor. I've learned a lot about that kind of area and I need to lead by example and I need to be open. So um, recent things have happened in my past that if, if I'm not in the best frame of mind, I don't mind going in the office and going, guys, this, is, this has happened. Um, I feel a bit down today or whatever that they can actually understand that and it's okay to be down it's okay to have issues outside of work and the more open i am as a leader i believe that they are more open in coming to me um on a one-to-one and it's already proved because i've had people come to me with things that they haven't shared that with anybody else in a work environment before so yeah i believe it does you mentioned that obviously you explain that in your interview process who you are as leader so it's always going to be following through to when they start. It's not like, oh my God, I can be different in front yeah, of this person. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, uh, but there's no pressure for someone to be open if they're not comfy with it. That's not what it's about. It's more about that they should feel they've got the support whether they want to talk about it or not. And if somebody just says, look, I've got things happening, I just need some time at home, fine, fair enough. Just, just it's, you learn there's more important things in life than, um, than work and if people are, my view is that, and there's a great book called The, the Happiness Advantage by Sean Aker, and it, a lot of people believe that the most successful people are happy, but what science shows us is that the happy people are the most successful. And I live by that, that if I can make my team as happy as I can, then there's more chance of them being productive and efficient in what they're doing and they'll have, we'll have a good culture. And that's how I think about it. What's made you think that way? Do you think it's just like your wife you mentioned, or is it experiences doing things in a wrong um, way? Things that have happened in my past. Um, So my wife had um, cancer four four, four years ago. And um, I think that that really taught me a lesson. I think that one thing is I think that a lot of uh, health issues come from stress. I, I firmly believe that myself. Um, it get you get run down from it, and it's not good for us. But when I was when that happened, my boss at the time said to me, um, that "Your priority is your wife. Don't be thinking about work. Your next priority are your kids. 
you gotta look after them. Uh, your third priority is yourself. So do whatever it takes for you to be happy and do what you're as happy as you can be. And if you get any time left over, do some work. And that to me was uh, quite mind blowing in a way because it was, that helped me. And when I went back to work afterwards, I don't think I could have been more committed to the cause. Um, but it made me realize that shit happens and it's important for us to be happy in life and work will be, you'll be successful in work if you're happy in life, I believe, if you put in your effort in. How do you spot that in someone in your team who perhaps is going through like a struggling time or stressful or? Uh, I'm just have, you really, had, have you had a lot of it over the time when you're managing yes. reps? I, th and... I think you do, I mean, I'm not saying just at, at Salesloft, I think the more, and it, it comes back to the issue about lots of companies say we don't have any mental issues with it, mental health issues in our, in our team. Uh, I'm not sure that's a good thing. I'm not saying people should have mental health issues, but if you take the rate of people that have mental health issues, someone's gonna have it, but they just probably don't feel confident enough to say that they have an issue. So it's hard to measure, um, but I've seen in my past that there are, most people go through some problems at some stage in their life, and some people are unlucky that they have more of these issues that they have to go through. So it's just making sure that they feel they can come to you and having that open environment. But it does take a lot of being proactive and um, caring for people. Got it. You mentioned about diverse form as well. How do you know if you've got it? Is it because you just like throw out a question out there and everyone's coming up with different <sighs> ideas know? or? I don't know, it's, uh, well, I think the more you can get under someone's skin and understand how they think, because if you can ask one question, you can get an analytical, you can get an emotional, you can get every type of answer. And if you actually listen to all of those answers, and this is where one of my biggest learnings I had to really take on when I went into leadership was my open-mindedness to other people's views. And I think it's common with sales people going into sales leadership. Yeah. And I was very stubborn, I always thought I knew best, and it's something I really had to make an effort with. And when I started making that effort, I was thinking, well, why do I need to listen to other people? I know the answer. But when you realize that your mind works in, in a certain way, um, that other people's mind works in different ways, and then if you listen to what they've got, and I mean, it also impacts how included someone actually feels if you're listening to them. But if you crowdsource an answer, and then you take a bit of everybody's to find the best proper answer, you're a lot better place than if you just go with one brain and yeah. when your brain's not that great. Um, so the diversity of thought, I think is a massive thing that understanding how, how people think at an early stage, and you can normally see it because if you're getting someone to present in a role play, some people will be more analytical and it's like the old insights colors, right? I know that you shouldn't say someone is blue or someone yeah. is red, but they tend to lean towards. Um, and getting a range of those is, um, is important. Got it. What about uh, coaching, managing staff? I know you mentioned uh, at Sites Conversation that you, you'd like to take a step back. Hmm. Do you have any managers at the moment or not? I don't have any managers. And when I say I take a step back, I th I'm, I'm very honest at the beginning that I don't micromanage. We yeah. have one-to-ones and they will happen every week or every bi-weekly depending on that person. Do you want it weekly? Do you want it bi-weekly? It's not a case of I'm only seeing you every two weeks. So you offer it out, the kind of the option? Yeah, okay. yeah. If, and some people will say, well, can I just have one every two weeks, but can we meet for morning for me to do role plays with you? So I think that it's, um, you, 
I've always been very clear saying, look, I've got too many people to micromanage and I'm, not, I'm sure you probably won't be that happy if I do micromanage. What I'd rather do is set expectations and accountability right at the start. So my expectations of someone in this role is for you to do these key metrics. And I keep an eye on these. And if you're not, if you're struggling, you come to me. And if you're, if you're not hitting it, then that's how we scientifically look at these to say, right, these bits are where you're lacking, etc. But I will always look for three, at least three things to be working on in development with every member of staff at any one time. The way that I try think about this is what's going to make you better at your job, what's going to make you a better professional, and what else do you want to develop at? I want at least two of those, and it could be the what else do you want to develop at? Could be emotional intelligence. It could be um, getting stressed at certain times. Whatever it is that's less around the actual job itself. Um, so I try to work on those things with each member of staff, and but I want them to be accountable for coming to me for help if they see a problem. Whereas in the one-to-one, -one, we'll look at pipeline, we'll look at everything else, and we'll, we'll look at these metrics just to make sure they're on track. So I don't just literally stand away from them, but it is, people have got to be accountable for their own development. So one of my interview questions is, what's the last thing you did to develop yourself? And if they say, oh, my company put me on this training, it's like, no, no, what did you do yourself? Because you, you can't train anyone if they're not interested. You can't develop people if they're not interested. It's got to be a two-sided thing. Um, and I think that's important. I believe that someone told me about this stat, you know, plenty of stats flying around that like in all of your development, 20% of it will come from the company, the 80% of it will come from yourself asking the questions, yeah. pushing yourself outside of the box and doing some extra reading. Yeah, and I think it's, it, it comes back to the coaching um, element, this, this, the differentiation between coaching and teaching. And I think that uh, as we become a leader, we start by teaching too much rather than coaching. And to me, coaching is just asking the questions for them to think about themselves and just saying, what well, do you think that's right, et cetera? What else would you do in that situation? Rather than going, well, that's wrong and you should have done this. Um, and you're just going to guide them through their development if you're doing the coaching rather than do everything for them if you're doing the teaching. And I think it's really important. So measurements that are quantifiable is quite easy to identify, which is like, you're not on plan. What about those which are a little bit subjective, like you're being rude? Yeah, <laughs> so one thing... <laughs> or I think, the way you're operating with the team's a little bit off. Yeah, I, do you know what? I think this is a really hard thing. And one thing that um, is, uh, I would advise anybody to do is be clear with your core values or your culture and values, whichever you, you want to call them as a business. So when I was at LinkedIn, they had very well-known culture and values. And as a leader, if someone is being rude or something like that in your team, rather than sit there going, you're being rude because that's subjective. Well, no, I'm not, prove it. Um, you can refer back to one of the culture and values that helps you frame that conversation. And it's a massive help. So, I mean, we have team over self. So if somebody is not doing the right things and being rude to the rest of it, say, and it may be not team over self, but referring back to one of those to show them how it's not aligned with the core values of the business, it's a great help. What about if someone set up late? See, I'm one for work-life balance. Yeah. So it depends on why they're turning up late. If it's laziness and they're not staying late, and they're not, if they're, if they're turning up late, they're doing a good job while they're there, and they're hitting the target, okay. I'm fine. Fair. As long as they're not, the only thing that I would be wary about is they're not setting a precedence for everybody else. Mm -hmm. That people think, well, he turns up late, or she turns up late, I can. Um, I think you need to be wary of that. But 
I would say my preference of wanting them to be in there earlier on, on most days, but as long as they're performing and that's what makes them happy, um, then it's, I'm okay with it. If you were to look to promote a manager internally or recruit one, what would you look for? Wow, um, someone that prioritizes culture and development of people. That would be my two things that I would make sure. I would want someone that, um, if I'm honest, our companies, because we are sales professionals selling to sales, a technology that surrounds sales, most people in our business are what we would class as sales nerds. That, um, and what I mean by that is, I mean, when my wife was ill, I took some time off to actually understand Salesforce better and learn to build dashboards and metrics and stuff. And I wasn't that person before. Um, so most people have that element of really wanting to understand the science of sales. Um, and that's something I think is important. Um, someone that can bring different things to what I bring as well. And someone that's probably better than me. Do you see, um, what, do, what do you believe in like, the science and art of sales itself? Like, what's the balance? <laughs> it's, uh, I, it's a funny one because I think that as sales itself, I think that um, the science bit is just basically the processes you go through, oh. in my view. And I think there's so many, for example, for example, there's so many sales books out there and a lot, just taking a bit of each of them, great. I don't think you can come away from the art of sales be, uh, being, it's about building trust and relationships. And that's the art of it. As long as you build those trust and relationships and you can do the basics, then you can sell. To what level? Who knows? Um, but they're the key things about having ethics within your sales process. But yeah, I think it is a mixture. And um, I think to me, science comes in more in the leadership side than as a sales side. But I do want my sales guys to know their ratios throughout the funnel to know that to get to five deals per month, they have to do this many, this, this many, etc., yeah. and all of those processes, which is the, set, the science side. Is there anything consistent that you've seen over like top performers over the years, like a trait or characteristic? Curiosity. Okay. Yeah, curiosity. Um, there was somebody that came into my team at LinkedIn that for the first week just asked loads of questions and I found it really frustrating, well not frustrating, I was like, God. But then I realized there were always good questions and this person was uh, one of the best people and um, when, it, when, it, when he developed. So I think that curiosity, because what sales is about is understanding yourself, curious about yourself, where you're strong, where you, where you can develop, curious about learning the product and curious about your client or potential client. So nothing worse than a salesperson going into a company just looking for the kill of a sale. Okay, where can I sell to you? Yeah. But sitting there going, okay, how's business going? Tell me, what, what are your pains at the moment? And that is being curious about how you can help somebody rather than just looking for an inroad just to sell them a product. So curiosity is what I would think about. Interesting. This is a bit of a personal question, but what's kept you going? Um, in this career in sales and leadership? Because I mean- Wife, kids. Uh, <laughs> um, Go pay the mortgage. Yeah. I, uh, I love what I do. I absolutely um, look forward to going to the office every day. I, but Jeff Wiener always talks about that happiness is looking forward to going to work and looking forward to going home. And I have that. So it's, I don't see it as what keeps me going because it's just uh, something I don't even think about anymore. At the, 
On a Sunday, I look forward to Monday. On a Friday, I look forward to the weekend. And it, there's no real difference in those. Is it a challenge? Is it doing something new? Because clearly you, you've got this new challenge now, but like... Yeah, I think it's the creative side. Because I did a graphic design degree um, years ago, years and years ago, um, and that didn't get me far in that space. But I like the creativity side. And when I read the book, The uh, Monkey Sold is Ferrari, it got me thinking about when I was the most happiest in my job. And this, this was a time when I wasn't as happy as I had been. So it helped me understand when was I most happy. I realized that I was creating a culture, a narrative, those kind of things. So it was that side of it that gave me the jumping out of bed in the morning and wanting to go do it. Um, and I think that when you're building the culture that you want to build, it makes it so enjoyable. I mean, yeah. it's I love being in the office. If I work from home from a couple of days, I want to get back in the office, which is, is strange. Got it. If you were sitting in front of Ali Sharp at the start of his career in door-to-door sales, yep. what would you say to him? <laughs> Do you know what? I've been so... Lucky's probably not the right word. I've... Uh, yeah, I've been lucky throughout my career. And I'm not saying I haven't put in the work or anything like that. Um, I would probably just say to him, just enjoy what you're going to go do because everything will be good. As long as you're... I think I've always had a, a, a strong work ethic that... Um, as long as I see a reason for the cause of what I'm actually doing, then and I enjoy door-to-door sales. So it's, um, I just, yeah, I, if you enjoy it through and put your effort in, then you'll be in a good place in the future. And I think that's what's happened to me. I just probably didn't enjoy it as much. Didn't realize the power of the happiness side early on. Got it. Last question, like, it'd be interesting to see what advice you generally would give to salespeople, whether they're performing or underperforming, but like, what would be like the go-to of like... Ah, okay. I sometimes get in trouble for saying things like this, but, um, well... Say I, it, Alvin, you say it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, Everyone wants to know. I mean, for me, there's bigger things in life. That I think sometimes when people are underperforming, they get too bogged down with looking at stuff and the, it impacts their negativity and if you're when i did door-to-door sales if you had not sold all day and it got to five o'clock the chances are you're not going to sell anymore if you're if you've just sold one on one door you're going to sell the next door because it's all about your your mindset so i think that if you're underperforming thinking about okay well let's scrape back let's go back to basics and let's trust in the basics and, let, and let's get on i think that is something but what i think myself is as bigger things in life than work is what it comes down to and this is where I maybe shouldn't say it but um, work is there to help you achieve what you want to do in your personal life in my view and if it can feed you give you the money to do the things you want then just enjoy what you're doing and I think that um, if you're if the stress is too much think about are you doing the right thing for you because I think that there's always a job out there for people if they're in the wrong job, they're not going to stay happy and you're in your, you work for a large percentage of the time that you're awake. So just make sure you're doing something that makes you happy and um, you'll be successful. Got it. Ollie, that's been really, really great. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thank Cheers, you. mate.